Welcome, everybody. This is the American Council of the Blind History Book Discussion Group. Today is June 29th, and we are discussing the People of Vision, a history of the American Council of the Blind by James J. and Marjorie L. McGivern, copyright 2003 by the American Council of the Blind. And I know that people are going to slowly be uh, coming in. So um, we'll be hopefully having a, a larger group of people with us today. With us today as host is Sheila Young. And I would like for Sheila to go ahead and go over the etiquette, please. And thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, if you would like to ask a question, to raise your hand on a PC is Alt-Y. To mute and unmute is Alt-A. On a Mac, it's Option-Y. To mute and unmute is Command-Shift-A. On the app, to raise your hand, it's under More Options on the bottom right. And to mute and unmute is on the bottom left. And then on a Standard keypad, it's star nine to raise your hand and star six to mute and unmute. And I'm sure Christy would probably like it if you have background noise to go ahead and stay muted. But if you don't, yes. I think this is a pretty relaxed call. So Yeah. And I have some construction going on next door that I'm hearing some things. And I don't want to close my door because I'm also expecting a package from Amazon. Well, you should be aware then that the Zoom noise cancellation has muted all of that. We don't hear any of that. Oh, fantastic. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I would like for um, anyone who would like to um, talk about uh, what um, what takeaways you had from reading um, the first part? You know, we discussed the first part of of uh, chapter two last week, and so uh, I'd like to I'd like to uh, see what you guys think. Any comments, uh, takeaways from up to 1947? Did anybody read? <laughs> Bob, you may go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, can you hear me? I think I'm yes. unmuted. Yes. Thank you. You're good. Okay, mm-hmm. thank you, Sheila. Um, first of all, it you know started as a very fledgling group, 1940. I'm not going to go through every year, but I want to comment about a couple here. 1940, um, you know, 100, uh, 16 delegates uh, from seven states, and it started to grow. And certainly, um, they 41 was Des Moines, as I remember. Dr. Newell Perry gave a major speech saluting a national organization. And I, I had always heard that he opposed it, but he did not. He supported it. And I thought that was great. The battle for the pension for the blind continues. 
um, and the, you know, and so forth. Um, I think I'll jump to 47. Let me get him. Okay. 1947, we have Derwin McDaniel entering the scene. Uh, that impressed me. This young lawyer from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And um, he really took off, you know, got onto the board and really, and Dr. Tenbrook would always say, could you go to the convention, this convention? I can't go. And uh, Derwood would go, you know, he was that kind of a guy. And uh, of course he becomes, he is remembered as the father of the American Council of the Blind. So that's what I remember. I mean, you could get into facial vision, Christy. That was interesting discussion. And Dr. Hayes uh, said, this is a bunch of baloney and, you know, so forth. And, uh, but the, there was a lot of things like that. Uh, 46, we had A.L. Archibald coming in, Archie. Uh, and he, I thought he did pretty well as, as executive director. Anyway, I'm done. Let's hear from others. Thank you. Great. 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 Thank you, Bob. Okay. Erica, and three, three, zero, zero, seven, five, last three. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's amazing to, to hear about, you know, all the things that happened and, uh, uh, during that time, and I'm 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 glad I'm glad to be a part I'm glad to be a part of the activities uh, uh, at the American Council of the Blind. <laughs> and, and who are you? <laughs> this is Stephanie. Stephanie, and where are you from, Stephanie? Yeah. I'm from Ohio. Ohio. All right. Thank you. Are you, are you you haven't participated before, have you? Last week. I was there Did last, you last week. week? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> great. Yeah, me mm-hmm. too. It, it helps me to, to realize how, um, how everything has changed. <laughs> yeah. And how different we would be. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Anyone else mm-hmm. want to talk about the Larry? takeaways from last week? Okay, Larry. Interesting that in, it's about 1946, 47, you begin to realize who the main contributors to the NFB movement were at that time. Uh, you heard names, but then with all of the conventions, etc., and the, like McDaniel, Derwood, and other people, it's, it got to the point where you say, oh, I know who that is, and I know what they stood for, at least back in 1947. So the prime players were beginning to make themselves known. The facial vision thing was fascinating to me because I believe in it. I use it. Uh, but the thing that was fascinating also was you began to see, and I don't know that I would call it militant back then, but you began to see that, that this organization was very much an in-your-face organization. Yeah. They were not going to take any crap because they were the really the only ones around at that time. They were trying to get people to join them because they believed, as, as, as we do today, that there's strength in numbers. But they weren't going to take any garbage from anybody, and if they had something that they didn't like, they were going to tell you about it, and you'd find out about it either through litigation, but more likely suit. So some some large things were beginning to happen in the mid-40s that continued on for decades. Thank you. Anyone else? Oh, yay, Louie. You don't have any other hands raised. Okay. 
So did I raise my hand? I can't tell. Oh, Don, go, no, I don't think so. But it's no, you Don didn't. Nine. What yeah. is it? All it's Alt Y, isn't it? It's yeah. Alt on the computer. Oh, oh you're on well, the computer. Yes. Alt-Y. Hi guys. Hi, Hi. Libby. Okay, so we're talking about yeah, yeah. What, what happened I, in chapter yeah. two? This is um, kind of wait, an wait aside. A wait a second, Don. We're yeah. talking about what happened in chapter two, and we got up to basically about 1947. So go ahead, Don. Sorry. Well, they said they fired Sling Heidi about that time, didn't they? I, anyway, but I remember him and his wife in Jernigan's living room written, reading Braille. He was a guest. Jernigan's house was right across from the orientation center. So uh, that I just was curious. He was terminated by then yes yes yeah he was short-lived and and that isn't that an interesting memory um don too yeah well he actually yeah he was a lawyer in california i think Uh, i'm not sure yes he was Uh uh-huh yeah but to actually be in jernigan's living room yeah there was something going on (laughs) in person with these guys, whether it was a, you know, whether you knew exactly what was going on or, you know, a lot of things we were kind of shielded <clears throat> from until after the fact. And then we're like, oh, hey, what the heck? What happened? Or we may have said, I knew something was going on. So, well, Terry, yeah. Terry has her hand raised. Go ahead, Terry. Hi. Um, Hi. I'm so glad I finally got a chance to get in on this. Me uh, too, Terry. I've, I usually am working at this hour, but I started early today, so I said I'm taking an hour off. All right. <laughs> and and jump in. And I might be jumping a little ahead, but one of the things that um, I think was Larry just mentioned that I think is very interesting is when you look at who some of those people were who were the leaders in the in the Federation at that time and, and, and after that, who ended up actually being the leaders in this organization. People like George Card, like um, uh, Ned Freeman, like, well, of course, Derwood. Uh, there's, there's somebody who, uh, John Taylor, John Taylor was, uh-huh. was a president, was president of NFP for a couple of years. He, um, John ended up um, for many years, he was, the chair of the scholarship of the ACB scholarship committee. Um, I think the the in so many ways, kind of the cream of the crop ended up in ACB. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's quite interesting, Bob. I only wanted to add, Christy and others. It, in 1946, we start seeing the split between the Federation. Yes. And the American Foundation and AAWB, yes, they team up mm-hmm. to grab money, and that's our great fear in California. We got five point two billion dollars for the the needy, and you guessed it, rehabs got it, and they're handing it out to independent living centers, and they're and not getting the blind, our, and that's yeah. what they did there, and that's why Dr. Tenbrook and others ultimately in one of his speeches later he says either the agencies will destroy us or we'll destroy them which was sad we need each other but right. uh, but uh yeah the split was starting right okay anyone else um 518 area code 517 last three 
This is Mary Beth. Hi, Mary Beth. Um, hi, sorry I was late. Um, what I thought was interesting, too, was to begin to see, you know, like you were talking about, the the cream of the crop, how the the two sets of creams of the crops, how, they, how they're starting to diverge, you know, how you're starting to see, you know, um, um, you know, Kenneth Jernigan, you know, going one way and, you know, Durd McDaniel kind of, like Bob said, you know, just, just the beginnings of seeing these guys going, um, you know, going divergent ways and maybe, maybe, um, you know, moving ahead a little bit, but to, to, to see that, I, I guess I always thought that it was, it was, you know, Tenbrook, Iron Control, then pass on to Jernigan. And obviously I, I was wrong about that. And then, mm-hmm. and I thought, I thought that that was, that was really interesting to see how, you know, Kenneth Jernigan began to, to, um, exert, you know, more and more influence over Dr. Tenbrook. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Debbie? Oh, the audio now unmuted. You're unmuted. Yeah. Okay. A quote, a quote that I, I just maybe kind of captures the difference in philosophy um, where he said, are we, are, are we looking for uh, a, the blind to have a place in the sun or a seat in the shade? <laughs> and, and I think that kind of captures the difference in philosophy, you know, um, uh, create uh, contributing to a system where we can we blind and you know um, um, get a job, uh, make our way, make a contribution, or are we going to have be in a position where people are just handing stuff to us? And it seems like that's maybe one of the philosophical differences that emerged. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Debbie. Sure, Debbie. I think that's mm. how it's pronounced. Debbie, if I can figure out. You got it. You're you're there, Debbie. You were unmuted. Oh, okay. Here I am. Sorry, I'm. I've been multitasking. Um, yeah. What was interesting to me is this whole discussion of handouts versus hand ups, and I think yes. there was an, a discussion of, you know. As, as Kathy said before, uh, do you get a job or do you get a handout? I don't think it was that clear cut, and I still don't think it is. And, and we see that in Scandinavian countries where a lot of people, not just blind people or poor people, get all kinds of assistance if and when they need it. And um, I think this is something that we still haven't adopted in this country, and that's why we have such a weak social safety net. Um, but I also was interested to know that when we had the history discussion during our CCB convention, everyone re- re- spoke with great respect for Dr. Tenbrook. And yet, wasn't he part of the problem in a sense? Because some people felt he was very conceited and had to have his own way. And that was one of the reasons that folks decided to pull out of the NFB. So I'm still kind of confused about that uh, situation. Hi. Hey. Hi, guys. Hello. Oh, hi, hi. Hey, 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 it's Ann. Hi, how you doing? Good. Do you want to say something about Yes. The... Okay. Yeah, I want to make a comment that someone just made about Dr. Timbrook. 
uh, I read Dr. Timbrook's autobiography, and he's a very smart man. He's, he's, he did a lot even more for not just NFB. You know, he was the start of NFB. But, um, and also, he also did a lot for the poor. He did a lot for, he just did a lot. You know, but I, I, don't, I don't know if he really contributed to the uh, breakup of NFB um, to ACB. I really don't know. Okay, thank you. Okay, remember to mute, please. I'm hearing oh, some background sure. noise. Sorry. Thank you. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, this is Don Queen here. I don't My see hand you. was up. My, so was mine. I, well, okay, okay hang on. <laughs> Go ahead, Don. Whatever. Okay. I I think one Dr. Timbrook was smart and he knew it. There's no question about it. And uh, he was really respected at the university. And uh, he organ tried to organize the poor. And that was kind of mistaken. I mean, the disabled were the ones that came in with the CILs. But I I think that the book is a little bit uh, his uh, treatment was seemed to be a little one sided in the late the later chapters. That, that that was just my opinion. Okay, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> well, I, I, I would like to get to the crux of it. In my opinion, remember, I wasn't there for for that one. I was too young, but I was in college and all of so. The key was the belief in a strong president or a weak mm -hmm. one or a lesser one with, with less authority. And that became a, and the card amendment, which comes up later, George Carter was mm -hmm. loved Dr. Tenbrook and, and remember the eulogies in the, in the forum when Dr. Tenbrook died, people wept, people knew his brilliance and they were sorry, you know, that it happened. They didn't say we were wrong. They didn't get into that, but they knew he was great, but it, it became Car George Card supported a strong president in '58 as the first vice president, and that that really was a struggle. Um, ACB does not have a weak president, but we have a president that that asks, "What do you guys think?" Ask the board and membership, and that's the way we choose to do it now. We wouldn't tolerate a, a president with the authority Dr. Tenbrook had. Maybe he needed it in the early years, but it wore thin later. I think, and I'll do respect. Right. Maybe, um, you know, I describe NFB as basically a top-down organization, and, and I describe um, ACB as kind of a grassroots, more grassroots, more uh, people up. Um, it, uh, it was, he talked about the Achaean, Achaean leagues in Greece, where everything, the president had absolute authority, and when they just had had accounting at the end of each year, you know, he he talked about the Achaean leagues of the ancient Greece, and he didn't want to be arguing with the board. Yeah. Well, and obviously the board in the beginning didn't want to argue with him either. They figured he knew what was best. He's he's the leader. Let's give him what he wants. Hmm. But so, California had a, a history of. Strong leaders, yeah, all, all of them that went uh, and they went, they grew, and the other group didn't. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. So, I'd like to address 
um, start going through and uh, address um, some of the other things that happened. In February of 1947, um, then-Executive Director Archibald received a letter from Doward McDaniel, a lawyer from Oklahoma, telling him, telling Archibald, of his excitement to be representing uh, the convention on behalf of Oklahoma State Association of, of the Blind. The convention was being held in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Archibald wrote back with a warm, inviting letter uh, to McDaniel, welcoming him. So um, what new innovative policy did Tenbrook Institute in order to energize conventions going forward. So during this convention, he he innovated something that took about five minutes for each one. I don't think that was that important. It was that's what they he, said, but uh, well, but it was innovative at the time. And 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 so what what was it and what did it what did he strive to do with that? Had each each delegate re- give a report on their state and, and yeah. uh, well that's something that is common practice. It, it was anyway. And Mary Beth has her hand raised. Mary Beth and he said that they they should keep it short, very short. Yeah. That's what yeah. I was going to say, Don. You did yeah. good there, <laughs> Mary Beth. Um. Well, I was I was going to mention that too, but the other thing is, I think uh, the thing that really amazed me during this whole uh, section is the number of letters exchanged by these people. Considering there's no email, the number of letters and the amount of travel um, that you know that that mm-hmm. seemed to happen during these times, and I don't okay. know if if Don or Bob or somebody can can speak to it. But and and of course, I I wondered um, when they're doing you know, all this research, um, if anybody knew and um, if anybody knows, are, are all these letters, I know that sometimes they mention carbons and all that, which would indicate that the letters are in print. But, I mean, obviously, if, if, if I'm going to write to to Bob, um, I'm going to write to, I'm going to write to him in Braille. Was all this stuff in Braille? Was it in print? Does anybody know? I believe that a lot of it was in print. And remember, these, yes. this is Durwood's, this Durwood's is correspondence. It's, right. It's his correspondence. The NFB oh. has papers, which they'll never share with the world. They have the right. Tenbrick Library. So you don't get Tenbrick's. Later on, I agree with Don. I, I think some of the letters, should, calling him the bearded one. and But this was the anger of people. And Durwood right. just let it free speech. And, uh, you know, let them do it. I wouldn't have done it, but I didn't write the book. And they're using Durward's correspondence a lot. Right. Um, and, and I want to say that I believe that they typed out the letters. And it just astounds me because you know how hard it is to. I believe I mean, Hazel typed out the letters. <laughs> well, Hazel typed out Tenbrook's letters, but who? helped McDaniel and companies with their letters and who read them all to them. Because remember, they didn't have scanners or anything like 
we have Christy um, Hazel Tenbrook read Dr. Tenbrook's letters. And I will say at that time, later in life, that's another story, but she was amazing. She was, yes, and, she I, was. And, and Eileen McDaniel. Yes, Eileen McDaniel, absolutely. And, uh, excuse me, Eileen McDaniel, uh-huh. um, you know, did reading and whoever else they got. It was in print. Dr. Yeah. Tenbrook could read Braille beautifully. Durridge Braille was okay. You know, I don't think it was in too many Braille things. Thank well, you. and not not all of them learned Braille. Not all of them knew Braille. We talked about people going blind at, like, I think it was George Card mm-hmm. that finally ended up going blind at, at 33 of age, three, 33 years of age. So, yeah. so in the snapshot regarding Doorwood K. McDaniel, 1915 to 1994, how was he blinded? Was it acid, Don? Do you remember there was there was a blow up and it, uh, some acid yep. in his face? It was acid. Yeah, well, who was Durward, it? I didn't get the name. Durward Durward was, uh, was, it was a gas. It was on the oil fields. Yeah. Yes, Durward in the oil fields. Yeah. yeah, it was an explosion of some kind. Durward yeah. was probably not that handsome, but a beautiful person inside. That's uh, what counts, anyway. He was uh, about fifteen when it happened in nineteen thirty. Yep. So. Um, what interrupted McDaniel's um, college education? He went to... Didn't know. He got me. I don't remember. He got a job as an office manager of a small institution. You know, that to me is um, noteworthy because... W- you know, a lot of us went to college. We're very well educated, but when it came to us trying to get jobs, even summer jobs or anything like that, it was like impossible. I don't know. Of, of all of you, um, I got my, my, my job way after I graduated from, from high school, from college and high school. So, you know, did, did any of you guys work during college? If nope, you went I to did. college, you did. No, I yeah. didn't. Nope. Mine, mine took a long time before I mm-hmm. got a job. I, I did a little, but it was an uncle for an uncle on a ranch. Okay. So, yeah. Mary yeah. Beth. <laughs> Mary Beth, you have your hand um, raised. I worked. I worked when I was in in college, but I I wonder sometimes, you know, if it isn't in some ways harder. Um, now or in the past, say, 20 years, um, for people to, to get jobs than, say, it was for for me, which was considerably longer than that ago. Um, and and I, think, I think in some ways it is. Um, and I don't, I, I've never seen a study, you know, like if somebody's ever done an employment study, but I think, I think that in some ways, um, despite the technology, it, it is harder for blind people now to get to get jobs than it was maybe 30 or 40 years ago. I would say the reverse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Having, yeah, having sure. lived it. Um, I know that I, I didn't get my first job until I was 35 years old and it sure wasn't for lack of trying. Barry. I am unmuted. I was just checking. 
Um, actually, I kind of agree with her, with uh, someone that spoke that said um, Mary, it Beth. Mary Beth. It was Mary Beth mm-hmm. that it was easier 40, 50 years ago. Um, and I think there were a couple of different reasons for that. We tended, I think, far more often in those days, you knew, so, you know, we did, we looked for summer jobs or even for jobs when we finished school through personal networking as opposed to looking at the rehab agencies. Um, that was, which is most of the way that most people, most sighted people got summer jobs when they were in college. You know, you knew somebody that worked at UPS and they got you in for the summer, that kind of thing. Um, I knew someone in our state house and he got me, a, he got me a, an internship once, once uh, my first summer, um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and there was a lot more of that. The other issue is that I still have a problem with, with the ADA and such is if you needed something back then, you went out and bought what you needed. You didn't look for somebody to spend, even if it was 30 or $40 to buy our stand to put your paperwork on so that you could type that kind of thing. Now everybody has to do everything. You know, the, the employer has to provide everything. And that's, I think that has caused us a good bit of problems. Thank you. Terry raises, Terry raises a great point. We were going to hire a blind girl when I was president of the California council of <clears throat> blind and, and it was a specialist placement. They call it handy caps or handy something. It was to place the handicapped as they called it. And it got up the cost to employ here, got up to $22,000. We had to provide computers, all kinds of equipment. And I said, I pass and I'm for the employment of the blind. But when the employer had to, you know, has to put out all the accommodation in my day, of course, you don't want to go back to that long. They told us, get the contract if you're going to be a teacher. You figure the rest out. And that's what I learned from Dr. Grant and others. You get the contract, and there's always a workaround that you'll have to figure out. And that's where I started. Thank you. Thank you. And if I can just add to it, I think that's also why 30, 40, 50 years ago, we had far more people employed in more diverse uh, mm-hmm. careers than we do today. We have a similar unemployment rate today than we did 50 yes. years ago. Yes. But the difference is how much of that is the industry that we have built around accessibility. You know, I would disagree with this. I one of, The most frightening thing I found when I was getting out of college or joined, first joined the blind organization, these people in their 50s and 60s never worked. Right. They never found a job and tried. And that was pretty common. And then when I got into it, was, it's hard now. And I fight with, when I was a counselor, I would fight with, they, they wanted the employer to pay for everything. You know, when they first started working, I said, don't. You, you want to keep that employer for another placement and don't make it hard for them. <laughs> you know? yeah, but they didn't always agree with that. They want. They thought the ADA was going to take them off the bill, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you an interesting example. In and after this, I'd like to move on, okay? Sure. In 1971, we started what was called the Blind Leadership Club of Massachusetts. It's the original. It's what's now Bay State Council of the Blind. 
<clears throat> at that time, it was we were mostly young kids. We were barely we, some were still in college, some were out of school. Of the twenty, uh, there were roughly thirty of us that started that organization. Twenty-seven were either in school or working. We had less than a twenty percent unemployment rate in that group at that time. One one thing I I can say is that there were programs. Um, I knew people who didn't go to college, but they uh, were accepted to uh, programs such as um, clerical or um, other types of hands on programs. And I guess I would say trade trade programs. Um, and I don't see when I was a vocational rehabilitation counselor in the early 90s, um, those programs were being um, discontinued. And and I have no idea now where people, like I had a, a client who wrapped uh, silverware for uh, a restaurant or did things like that and or answered phones. I had someone who answered phones and was a receptionist and that's basically what that person did. That's so true. There's yeah. there's nothing like that available now. It's hard. Well the the labor market changes every few years. Yep. And the typing jobs, uh, my wife got to be she was started out as a dictaphone transcriber, but she was mm-hmm. a supervisor at the bank in the word processing and uh-huh. she lost the job because well everybody got PCs and they did their own typing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Uh, and they, uh, even lawyers, they, they, they didn't have desks. They, they would go in and push their laptop in there. So, yeah. you know, it's a totally different world that way. Yes. Yes. All right. I'd like to move on. What are the two degrees um, that um, Doward K. McDaniel held? What did he receive? We know one was a law degree. Yep. But the other one, I don't know. Bachelor of Arts okay. uh, in Political Science. I believe that. <laughs> Very useful. Um, what was the organization that Doorward K. McDaniel was involved in? Um, and what offices did he hold? It was the Oklahoma group. Oklahoma. Yeah. Oklahoma. Oklahoma Association of the Blind of the, um, organized in 1919. And he uh, also served as first vice president and later as president of that organization. Okay. Interesting. Interesting was that he asked uh, Timbrook to uh, announce his uh, appointment on the board so he yes. wouldn't have to brag about it. Right. right. To his yeah, that, com- that, 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 that comes up later. That was his style. You yeah. look at him and look at Jernigan, it's very different style. Different yeah. styles. Oh, my Jernigan, gosh. Are you kidding? Okay, so where was the sixth NFB convention held? And who was honored? Who was the honored guest? Sixth convention. It was Humphrey. 
Yep. And so where was that convention? What's his home state? Minnesota. Yeah, Minneapolis, Minnesota. 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 Yep. Yep. Um, which state became the 24th affiliate? Not Kansas. I don't know. <laughs> nope. No. Starts with a T. Texas? Tennessee. Tennessee. That's that's and, close. <laughs> and the, yeah. And that was the important that was important because the twenty fourth state that were there were only forty eight states back then, so that was the halfway mark. Well, and many of the great leaders of the blind came from Tennessee. Yeah. Oh, really, they yes, really indeed. produced a lot of them. They were. What was the foreboding side to the nineteen forty seven Minnesota Convention? Uh-huh. Just to guess, the mailing program? I don't know. Uh, yeah, it was financing the NFB. Money. The problem, you know, that happens, it's still happening today in, in ACB, right? And not as much as before, but... Um, oh, what much be- much different, ahead. much different, Christy, because the agencies later produced a, um, a paper... Of, of good practices attacking the NFB's mailing right. program. And that right. was on, that was on, that's where we get finally to the right of the blind to organize. It was a war. It was right. becoming it, a war with the agencies. It was definitely. So I was saying what became an annual um, fundraising drive in 1947? White, white cane. White King. Yeah. I remember Kathy Skyber ran it in California. And right. Yep. Yeah. So the a Lions. resolution, a resolution was adopted to split the proceeds 50-50 with the NFB and each state affiliate. Um, it was noted that states did not join as readily as a result of the fundraising policy that was adopted because they didn't want to give, they didn't want to give half of their funds to the national. And there was um, a big um, problem between state affiliates and the national um, in terms of uh, organizing and being unified and, um, you know, giving the the national um, the same amount of money as the states were were making. Yeah, but the mailings mailings only gave four hundred produced one or two percent. Yeah. Anyway, very very. I remember they hand stuffed these envelopes in, in oh, Oakland. Oh, I remember. And, yeah, yeah. What and, was and this? We, Go I'm ahead. sorry. We we always deal with local itis. Yes, in we our do. state. In other play, they they say, "Oh, it's just our little chapter. We don't care." Yeah. That's that's a struggle. That is a struggle. Continuing, what was the second order of business during the 1947 convention? Oh, the financial thing. They had a yes. committee of the whole. <laughs> yeah, see often. Yep, they said it was a tangled financial arrangement that called for taxing the affiliates and raising new funds. Um, I don't know, Avalyn Bishop, 
of the American Brotherhood for the Blind, um, AAB, I'm sorry, ABB, um, introduced a five-part proposal to have the NFB endorse the legislative supplement of the All Story magazine. And this comes up later. This magazine comes up later. Um, the publication of the American Brotherhood for the Blind as an official mouthpiece. Um, prior to this, there was no official publication of the NFB. This allowance was on condition that the NFB donate $100 up front, um, send the magazine to all NFB members and help to raise funds for the publication to continue in the future. So I always wondered about what the, what is this American Brotherhood for the Blind? Oh. You know, as oh, a teenager, yeah. I mean, it was not obvious to me and I could not understand the, um, the importance of it or how it fit, how they fit they made, into each other. They made great calendars. <laughs> yeah, I know. And good twin vision books. Yeah. yeah the but, American Brotherhood, I'll, Don can finish this. Or Jack, I think you the, know more. The Brotherhood, the Brotherhood, I don't know when it started early and eventually the NFB took it over. Took it over. Tw- Twin Vision came. They made good calendars. and But it was run by certain people yes, in the NFB was. when I was there. They had a lot of money, and the president of the NFB ran it. And, yes. Um, there you go. Don, you might want to yeah, add yeah, to Well, it. I, yeah, the story I heard is Dr. Perry started with it. Started it, yeah. it with the mag- There was some kind of crook running it before, making a racket, and he took it over from them. And made in 1919. It- Right. In 1919, that's, that's right. That's the story. Uh, either Jernigan or Jenkins told me that. I don't want to fudge, but you have Mary Beth has her hand raised, Crystal. Okay, and and it would thank you. It was raised to. It was it was uh, it was created to raise funds for the for Perry's boys um, to go to college, mm-hmm. and Tenbrook was president in 1947. It is. Uh, Footnoted that the Braille monitor was in publication for three years in 1957 to 1960, Mm -hmm. disappeared for uh, four and a half years due to a civil war and was, I like how they said a civil war, and was replaced in those years by the Blind American, Blind American, yeah. Um, which was in turn disappeared in 1964 when the Braille monitor was uh, resurrected and was edited by Tenbrook until his death in 1968. And then Kenneth Jernigan uh, became its publisher with <coughs> Perry Sunquist <coughs> appointed as editor. So that's what happened to that. Um, Mary Beth? I think that 
in this 1947 thing with the American Brotherhood, you know, it, it you begin to see the thing that still exists today, at least at least in my opinion, um, where you have, you know, one. It looks like two organizations, but it's really not. Yeah. It's like one organization that's a little, and then it has this little shadow organization. And ditto for people, too. I mean, you see, so-and-so, they say so-and-so does this, but really it's somebody else pulling the yeah. strings behind that person. That there's a whole, and it's, but especially with the money thing, that it, you know, all that stuff blurs you know, blurs the money trail, makes it harder to audit, makes it harder to figure out where the money went, and consequently makes it easier to do things like building an office on your property for the NFB, as Dr. Tenbrook did. Yeah. And and um, anyone else? There's still a number of those organizations within the NFB. Yeah, I I I can't think of the name of the, the something fund, the American fund. There's well, there's American the, Action Fund. American, American Action Fund. Action fund. I, I got it, it right here. Actually, uh, Journey uh, wanted to be at the top of the alphabet, so he came up with American Action Action Fund. fund. Oh, because when I was, I know that I, I was doing a research paper. I was doing something to do a presentation as a social worker about um, working with blind people. Um, you know, in mental health, and I kept seeing this AAF, and I kept trying to figure out what, the, you know, it was the same kind of thing with the American Brotherhood for the Blind and the American Action Foundation. I was like, oh, okay. Well, this is so, stupid, though. Yeah, American Action Fund for Blind Children and Adults? Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and, and, that. And it makes it seem like they're giving out different information and that it's more believable because mm-hmm. it's coming from the AAF. And then they may, you find they're out... Based in, they're based in Baltimore, you know. Right. Way. And then you find out that, oh, it is actually the NFB. Yeah. So I thought that was... I, I was... It frustrated me when I realized that. Let's just put it that way. I had a fit when my grandmother accidentally joined it. Oh. Oh. Well, because what they were doing was groups would go around and let's sing at at Christmas at a senior center or something Mm -hmm. like that. And then someone from the group would say, if you would just give us $2, you can can help all of these blind children. Yes. My grandmother thought it was wonderful. Sure. I almost went Good nuts for her. I would too. Uh, yeah, but yeah. What a what a ploy for anyway. Um among the resolutions passed by this 1947 convention, what was the legislative committee um empowered to request? Pension. They wanted to request the, something of the President of the United States. Well, they wanted to fire somebody. Yeah. Uh, from Social Security. Social yeah. Security? Was that yeah. Resignation yeah. of Arthur J. Altmeyer. Yeah, that guy. As Commissioner on the Social, Secu- uh, Social Security Commission. Right. Yeah, that was a big. Um, a big 
That's a little, yeah. Snafu nastiness going on at this time between Alt Meyer and the NFB. Um, upon Tenbrook's move to Shasta Road in Berkeley, why were letters sent back and forth to NFB members as NFB developed a strategy to gain? further uh, clout with the Social Security Social Security Board. Wait. Something about letters, weren't they? Five letters. But they weren't convinced that that the Social Security Board had um, the power to rule um, to rule out state plans for aid to the blind um, um, to receive federal approval if only under social security uh, if only under the social security board and the automatic um, deduction was made from aid granted to any other earnings or income uh, which was which the recipient had so that was a big fight um, if, if you earned anything basically it was taken away and um, yeah California said its own plan <laughs> yeah avoid that yeah so so the the two attorney general that were um, basically working on that um, that they were looking at to, to help with dealing with this legislation was um, California, Missouri. Well, three California, Missouri, and Pennsylvania um, to see if um, if they could. Um, actually try to get a suit going against the the social security board. Well, I remember we used to write letters every few years to to save the Missouri, was it Missouri or the same that you mentioned this? Yeah. Missouri, Missouri plan. They had a second program like California did. Right. But California dodged it by calling aid to the potentially self-supporting we said, well, as opposed to age and needy blind, he said, well, that's right. a different need. And, and they bought it. They, right. Because it, it became less of a welfare using the word needy. needy yeah. It was as needy. opposed they, to self-supporting. They, they, didn't, they didn't fight it. It's somewhere along the line. Christy, you have about nine minutes. Okay. Um. Okay, let me skip on to why was Archibald so insistent um, in May um, after after having all of these letters written and and pushing um, to to work on getting um, something going 
um, to help get the appeals uh, increased. Something happened. There was a piece of legislation There was a piece of legislation regarding the means test. Um, Is that the one that Truman fired? Uh, the, Reed, the Reed Bill, HR 6211, no. was sponsored by Representative Daniel Reed, uh, Republican in New York, as a result of what the NFB had been advocating and noted that. Uh, they noted that this bill, in this bill, we will, yeah, um, have traveled a significant distance along the path to final victory over the. I think I think it was a fifty percent exemption of income. They, yeah, over the miserly, I like this, over the miserly bureaucratic and tyrannical policies of the Social Security Board or Social Social Security Administration, actually. I guess it was an administration at that point. Um, It was indicated that in order to claim victory, each person loyal to the program of the NFB quote must write at least five letters to Congress. A great opportunity is here to gain the right for the impoverished blind to earn a little and own a little. If you fail to act now, you're not only uh, letting yourself down, but also your blind neighbor. The blind all over the nation must rise as one person to demand passage of HR 6211. Well, blind um, people wrote letters then. <laughs> yeah, they, they did write now. letters then. Yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and the thing is that we typed out the letters and now we have email and we don't even <laughs> do no, any they, of that uh, they don't well they, they they told me at this is the alameda club which perry was active in and they would bring their slates and styluses to the meeting and he'd tell them what to write and who to write to and and, and they go home and they type them yeah They'd go and home it, and act on it. And in my day, in the early days, we had letter writing with chapters. We would help yes. them. We'd bring typewriters. And that was, forget the meeting at that. It was another meeting to write letters. And we'd say, what do you want to say? And then we'd help them write it. And they'd say, yes, that's what I wanted to say. Uh-huh. And then right then they would get written and mailed. Now we say, send your email, you know, which is good. But some people but, are afraid. They don't know how to do it. What well, that and okay, I'll get to it, and then the date okay. the date passes by. That's me. <laughs> um, where was the 1948 convention held, and who were seen as important guests to be invited? 
Think about where headquarters is now. San Francisco? You mean, oh, no. Yeah. Maryland. I, I, uh, yeah, Baltimore. Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, it was in Baltimore, and, huh? Yeah. Yep. And who were the um, who were the people that they really wanted to be invited? Who's close by? They wanted certain people to be invited. Congress. And Congress what they would do is that they would sit them at the tables Senators. with their constituents. And they would hear a pointed speech during the banquet. The congressional delegations? Yes, 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 yes. Um, okay, so we have like know. three minutes. And um, who did I, they invite? I, who did they invite, Christy? The, the legislators. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, we'll continue on um, with, I will just say that Mattson in his, in the 1948, um, in the Marching Together book, Mattson said of the 1948 convention, this convention address represented a turning point in its unusual emphasis on the need for employment opportunity and transformation of relief into rehabilitation. So that was the turning point. We will stop at the, and the three point motto of the NFB. What is the three point motto of the NFB? Security, opportunity, opportunity and something else. Security, security, opportunity, security, equality, and opportunity. Equality, yeah. That's when that was born. And so next week we will um, we will continue with chapter two and hopefully go into chapter three. Um, I invite all of you to read and also to. I invite all of you to read and also invite uh, people to attend. Thank you, Sheila, for your hosting. Thank you, everybody, for attending this meeting. And take care and have a great week.